Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Has Ground Podcast. We appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, lots of stuff to get to here and some really cool information I'll share in a minute, but wanted to remind you guys of our partnership with Amazon. Really easy. Just go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on the Amazon banner right in the middle of the homepage. Do your normal Amazon shopping. You guys have heard me tell you about this for weeks now. And the reason we keep repeating it is because it's working. When you guys go to our website, hazardground.com, click on that Amazon banner and do your normal shopping, we get a percentage of what you spend. And then we take that money and donate it right back to some of the charities you've heard on the Hazard Ground. In fact, we've just made another donation to one of the charities called the Headstrong Project. This is a phenomenal organization that provides free mental health care to veterans. So whatever you guys are doing, whatever you're spending on Amazon through our website, it is working. You are helping out veterans from the comfort of your own home. You don't have to get up. You don't have to do anything extra. Just go do your normal Amazon shopping through hazardground.com and clicking on that Amazon banner, and you guys are making a difference. So thank you so much for that. Also, I want to remind you guys to make sure you get on iTunes, leave us a rating and a review. Um, the reviews help us out so much, as do the ratings. It helps grow the podcast. But listen to this. Check this out. This is amazing. One of the reviews that we just got last week from a kid named Josh says, and I quote, I listen to your podcast every day at work, and I've listened to some of them three or four times, and this podcast is one of the reasons I decided to go down to the recruiter, and I'm going to go into the Air Force. Wow. That is just unreal. We never expected anything like this to happen when we started this, but the fact that we are hearing that from people is the reason why we do this podcast, and it's the reason why people love it is because of these stories that we're telling each and every week. And so thank you, Josh, for your choice to serve. Thank you for listening to the podcast, and certainly that is an amazing review, and we couldn't be prouder of you and the work that we're doing here at the Hazard Ground. So great news, great way to start this week's episode. Make sure you guys as well follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. Keep up with what's going on with the show. I couldn't be happier about I'm like just so excited. I couldn't be happier about that review in and of itself. And with that, let's get to a very special episode as we approach Memorial Day, a very special episode with a very special guest. Joining us this week is once again, we touch the outside part of military members and their family lives. We have another gold star family member here. The story is of Major Sam Griffith, a Marine Corps major who was killed in the Helmand province in Afghanistan on December 14th, 2011. His sister wrote a book called Always My Hero, and she joins us now. Her name is Renee Nickel on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Renee, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Well, look, obviously, uh, we appreciate it because... You know, it's such a tough thing for you to discuss and such a tough uh, set of memories for you to relive. So we certainly appreciate you uh, opening up to us. And we've interviewed Gold Star family members before. And, um, you know, I don't know how to start other than say I'm sorry. Uh, You know, obviously nothing will ever replace the loss of your brother. But it certainly is, um, you know, it's commendable for you to be willing to to keep his memory alive and keep his spirit alive and share his story. So uh, we thank Thank you you for that. But let's start kind of uh, back at the beginning. We ask about, you know, we usually ask about the the individual and how they got into the military. But, you know, for your brother, um, he actually, you know, was a a fairly normal guy from my studying and, you know, went to college and ended up uh, joining the Marine Corps after college, correct? 
Um, he actually uh, switched from the uh, Navy ROTC into the uh, Marine Corps ROTC when he was at Penn State. So he was offered um, a full scholarship into the Marines. So, you know, he could still, you know, his dream was to fly F-18s and, and he could still do that by switching from the Navy to the, um, to the Marine Corps. When did you know, like, he wanted to go into the military? Was it something he always wanted to do? Oh, yeah. He he wanted to fly jets since he was about five years old. So, I mean, that was that was the one and only goal his entire life. And um, and so everything he did was always working towards that. And um, I, I don't know if you remember the movie Space Camp, like, back in yeah, the 80s. yes. So my brother was obsessed with that movie and, um, you know, he wanted to, he wanted to go to space camp and, you know, so we were, we were thinking, well, maybe one day he'll become an astronaut, you know, and, and he, he, um, he just wanted to fly. So he just, you know, he was really smart and, and motivated and, uh, just, just really worked hard to obtain that goal. So, you know, we always knew he would go into the military. Uh, we actually thought that he would go into the Air Force. That was his plan. And then, um, you know, and then when he was choosing colleges, he knew he wanted to go to Penn State because, you know, a lot of our family went there. And um, and so he ended up going into the Navy ROTC and then switching over to the Marine Corps. Now, when he made this decision, this was pre nine eleven, so uh, the world Correct. was dramatically different. So I, I like Sam, you know, signed up prior to nine eleven, and I, I can remember. I've told this story often that you know when I was going through my senior year of colleges, I was an ROTC cadet, yeah. and there was job fairs and everything else going around, and and my fellow classmates would ask me, "Are you going to the job fairs?" And I would say no, and they're like, "Why?" I'm like, "Because I have to go into the army after," and they literally would look at me and go, "Well, why don't you just get a real job?" And so, yeah. you know, because that's what the environment, that's what the environment was prior to 9-11. Yeah. I mean, the military was downsizing. We were in a period of, of 20 years of peace since Vietnam. Um, right. And so, you know, from that standpoint, it's one of those things where it was a questionable decision. Um, what did you think as a family member that he wanted to do? Was there ever any concern? Uh, no, I never had any concern about him. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, and I tell people even up until he deployed his his third deployment as a as a forward air controller i never worried about him um i i didn't see him uh, i i saw him as an expert at what he did and to me he was just my invincible older brother he because that's that's how he had always been my entire childhood and he was just able to overcome you know a lot of different trials and and so I didn't worry about him. Now, I, I do remember, um, you know, come 9-11, uh, I remember that morning so vividly. You know, I was in this little apartment with my husband and my two-year-old daughter. And, you know, my mom calls and she's like, turn on the turn on the, the TV. And so we turn on the news, of course, and, and we actually see the second plane fly into the World Trade Center. And I just remember my husband looking at me and he said, we're going to war. And I'm going to join the Air Force. And so because, you know, his his mom and dad had both served in the Air Force and he had kind of been tossing it around. And um, and I was just like, oh, my gosh, we're going to join the military. And at that moment, I was so freaked out. Um, I, 
you know, I just, I got my car, I ran over, I drove to my mom's house. We lived a couple miles away and I just, I remember walking up on her porch and her coming out of the, the house and she was just sobbing and she was like, I know Sam's going to war. And I was like, my gentry's joining the air force. He's going to join the military. And I just remember us just like holding each other and crying because that's when the reality, you know, of our world just, just struck us. And we realized that none of us are really invincible. You know, we're, this is, this is happening. So where were you geographically? I'm just curious. Um, I was in Jupiter, Florida. Okay. All right. So at the time, yeah. All right. Um, and, and, so you have the double whammy now. I mean, your brother's already in the Marine Corps, uh, and your husband says he wants to join. Um, right. Did you have any conversation with your husband try to talk him out of it? No, no. Um, I was fully supportive. Actually, you know, I had a conversation with my brother. He called me up, and and um, he really just kind of walked us through the process. And, you know, and I was like, wow, you know, I'm going to become a military wife you know, my husband's going to serve our country. And, and I just kind of had a sense of pride. Um, and, you know, I just, I don't know. I, I mean, there was the, the fear of war was there. Um, and my, my husband did eventually deploy to Afghanistan, uh, but I don't know. There's just, there's just a sense of pride that comes along with, you know, my brother serving our country, you know, my husband joining, um, me being a military spouse, and then, you know, I come from a long line of, of patriots who have served our country. So my father served, my stepdad served, my grandparents served, my in-laws, you know, his, both his parents were officers in the Air Force. And so, you know, we just, we were just surrounded by military and it was just a great sense of pride. Do you remember the conversation you had with your brother and asked him, you know, did you, did you ask him like, what's going on, Sam? Are you, do you know where you're going? Do you know what's happening? Were you curious about anything? Um, yeah, I was, I was curious. I, you know, when he went to Iraq the first time, cause he was still training to be a, to, to fly. So it really wasn't until 2003 that he, you know, got word that he was going to go to Kuwait and he was just going for three months, you know, and, and, and I remember him telling me, Renee, I'm in the air. You don't need to worry about me. And he said, I'll be fine. You know, um, he said, it's always, you know, it's the guys on the ground that you need to worry about. So did you I, believe I, that? I did. I believe when he told me that I believed that. And so when he deployed the second time to Iraq, he was on the ground. And I remember having a conversation with my dad in our kitchen. And, you know, he was like, I'm really worried about Sam during this deployment. He's going to be on the ground this, this time. And, you know, and I was thinking, you know, Sam will be fine. You know, I, I just, I just, you know, trusted that he would be okay. Even though I saw this fear, you know, it was almost this panic that came over my dad's face. I'll never forget the look on his face when he went on that second deployment, but he came home, uh, safely. And, um, and then his third deployment, you know, I just, I, I don't know. I, I was just oblivious of how dangerous his job was. Right. And I, he just, he never told me, you know, he never told me. You never asked? I never asked. No. Um, was it because you just were, were playing dumb? Do you think in retrospect, was it naivete? Was it too scared to ask? Uh, 
Well, Sam was kind of, he, he didn't like to overshare, especially in regards to his military career. So, you know, even, you know, there's a lot of people who wouldn't even know my brother was a pilot, you know, unless they had asked him, you know, specifically, what do you do? You know, he just, he didn't talk about his military career a whole lot, um, in that regard, but you know, I just, I noticed there was something about him, um, because I, I actually spent a week with him before he deployed. And, um, I went, we were living in, uh, North Florida at the time in the panhandle. And we, we drove down to my mom's house in Jupiter because my brother served with the fourth Anglico unit in West Palm beach. And, um, and so I just, I just remember him always sitting on the porch, very quiet, um, he would just, you know, I would look at him and he would look at me and he would just kind of give me a half smirk and an eyebrow raise. And, and I felt like I knew there was a lot on his mind and I felt like I didn't want to add to it by, you know, questioning him or, or causing any more stress in, in something that he may already have felt, you know, stressed about. Did your husband ever ask him? Did your dad? Did your mom? Did anybody ever ask him about what went on? Um, I learned some things, you know, after after when I wrote the book. That's when I really started talking to to you know my mom and and his buddies and um, friends and that that sort of thing. Um, my mom was very very fearful. Um, which she never told me, you know, until after, after he died and I wrote this book. Um, I just, you know, I think, I think people don't just don't want to think about about their concerns. Exactly. You know, it's just kind of, you know, you have that fear and it's whether you have it or not, you know, you just, you, you can think it, but you don't really want to say it out loud. You know, it's weird. You know? It just dawned on me. My brother nor my sister has never once asked me about a single day in either of my deployments. And I've yeah. been, I mean, I've been on two of them. I've been the last, my last one was in 2011. So, you know, we're eight, nine years ago. Never once mm-hmm. have they ever bothered to ask me a single question. And I, I, now, now when you, when you say it, like you never asked them about it, I started, I said, well, that seems weird that you would never ask. And then I thought about now I feel like it seems weird that they never asked me, but I guess it's kind of normal. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's kind of like, what am I going to say? You know, Sam, did you ever kill anybody? I mean, that's always the place everybody's, that's where kindergartners start. Like when I, when I talk to small kids, it's the first question they ask. So I figured that that's a decent jumping off point. (laughs) Exactly. You know, and I, and I remember growing up, my, my uncle, he served in Vietnam and, and I remember my dad always telling me that, um, talking about Vietnam was off limits. We were never allowed to discuss it with him. And, and, and so I, I grew up knowing that, you know, if a person wants to talk about their time in war, they'll talk about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, we've interviewed other Vietnam vets. and We've interviewed kids um, of Vietnam vets who are in the military, and they said the same thing. My dad never talked about it. You know, my uncle never talked. We never talked about it until they put on the uniform. And yeah. then their father, their uncle, whoever it was, was willing to open up and share stories because they understand. And I think yeah. Vietnam was a little bit different. The only reason I say that, Renee, and, uh, you know, just give me a second here to expound on it. 
clearly the way we treat veterans and clearly the way we treat war is much different now than it was for Vietnam. And I can understand the, the angst of Vietnam vets not wanting to say anything for a lot of different reasons, a variety of different reasons that we've discussed multiple times here on the podcast. So not that I think that, you know, one is bad or one is good. I'm not even going there. I'm just saying with, with the... With the war on terror and everything in the post-9-11 world, I feel like we've been a lot more open about these discussions. I mean, heck, we're writing books and making movies about them on the regular, right? I mean, it's it's right. It's, it's fairly commonplace discussion now. Yeah, and when I was growing up as a kid, I had no idea how Vietnam veterans were treated. Right, none of I us was did. just told, yeah, I was just told that my uncle went to war and we weren't allowed to bring it up or talk to him about it. So I just associated war or somebody going to war with, you know, off-limit conversation. And so, you know, I just figured if my brother wants to tell me what he did over in war, then he can come to me and he can tell me, but I'm not going to pry. Do you, know? you wish in retrospect, you had asked more questions. I do. Yeah. I, I just, I wish I would have. Um, do you think in asking more questions, it would have made it harder for you to know what that Sam was away and constantly in danger? Possibly. Yeah. Would it have made it harder that your husband also was going through the same thing? Yeah. And, and you know, when Gen- when my husband, you know, his name is Gentry, when he deployed um, to Afghanistan, you know, I just he just always told me, hey, you know, I'm I'm on the base, you know, I'm safe. I don't leave. I don't leave the compound. I don't go out, you know, and um, and so I never worried about him. But every once in a while, he will say something um, and I know that there are things that he saw that affected him. Um, so, you know, I, I just think it's normal for our spouses and our brothers and our sisters and, and those who are fighting in war to not talk about it. They don't want us to worry. You know, what, what good are we over here trying to take care of things on the home front if we're visualizing you know, all the stories sure. they told us. No, yeah. I mean, I, I guess, I, I, yeah. again, that part would bother. Like, I, I felt the same way. I didn't want my family to worry. I never said anything to my mother. Now, my stepfather was in Vietnam. Every now and yeah. then, I'd, if I got him on the phone for five, ten minutes, I'd kind of clue him in on a couple of things that were going on. Some things, you know, the nature of, of combat. Because he understood it. Because he was there. Yeah. So it was right. easy for me to tell him. And I knew he would be able to either, one, relay the information properly to my mother. Or not tell her what she didn't need to know. But he was right. fully aware of what I was in. Because of uh, of being a Vietnam veteran. So, um, you know, I, it's unfortunate because, again, you'll, you'll, you'll you obviously you can't ask these questions. You know, um, it, it, do you know at this point in time, is there anything that you you don't have an answer to that you want still about Sam and what he did and where he was and everything else? No, because I have a great relationship with a lot of his Marines. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, several are, are very close friends of mine now. Um, you know, and, you know, we've, we've had conversations, you know, some of them were very open with me when, in writing the book. Um, several of them contributed to the story. Um, the, you know, Sergeant Winters, he was, he was actually with Sam when he was shot and killed. You know, he actually worked on him all the way back to base. Um, you know, and it's just, he, he edited that entire chapter for me and I'm, oh, really? and I'm 
oh my gosh. And I, and I'm thinking, I, I hated to even ask him, you know, I just, you know, when I sent him the, I sent him the chapter uh, on basically just the information that I had is how it was written. And when I sent it to him, he did like just a total edit of that chapter. And, and now it's just, and now it's like, you know, it's like having the full story from firsthand. Right. And, and I hadn't had that before. Oh, I, I don't want to get too far because I want I want to get to, I don't want to cut you off. I want to get to this sort of chronologically so our listeners can follow. Um, yeah. So I don't want you to tip your hand too much. Um, sure. But let's kind of go, you know, f- back a little bit. So it was Sam's third deployment. Uh, he goes to Afghanistan. Now, at this point, have you become desensitized to the fact that he was going and coming and going and coming? Was it a, not a big deal anymore? Oh, yeah. Well, every time I talked to him, he was training. So, I mean, he was always going, you know, he was going to Morocco. He was going to, you know, just different places to, to train. And, and, um, and so, yeah, I think I did become desensitized. I became desensitized because at this point when he deployed, you know, I was a military spouse for 10 years at that point. And I was living amongst the military community. And, and so that was just kind of my world. And, and so when he said, he called me, you know, and told me that he's deploying to Afghanistan, you know, I, I mean, the word Afghanistan, yeah, that scared me, you know, um, but my husband had already gone. And so my, you know, by the time Sam deployed in 2011, I already had gone through a deployment with my husband in 2000. When, you know, when Sam deployed in 2011, my husband, you know, he had gone in 2007. So I had already been through that deployment. Let me ask a dumb question. And I, I, I know it's dumb when I ask it, or at least it sounds dumb in my head. Is there a difference in the fear from your husband to your brother when they're gone? Uh, absolutely. What is it? How can you describe it? Um, well, I mean, we had kids when my husband deployed, we had two children. So yeah, I, you know, you think about how am I going to raise these kids by myself? If something happens to him, um, there's, it's just a, a different kind of fear because there's a different relationship. And, you know, my brother, when he deployed, it was, um, you know, my, you know, he's, he's a Marine with fourth Anglico. He's already flown F 18s. You know, he's been there, done that. He's just going to go over there and kick butt. So, you know, it was, it was just totally different. And, um, I didn't have the same fears that my parent that my mom and dad had. So when he honestly, when my mom called that morning and told me that he had been killed, you know, I couldn't understand what she was saying on the phone. And so she's crying like hysterically. And I'm thinking in my head, something must have happened to Sam. He must have been injured and he's coming home, but at least he's coming home alive. Oh, wow. In that split moment, that's what I was thinking. And then she's like, your brother was killed in Afghanistan. All right. Well, let's let's go through um, the events leading up to December 14th, 2011. Where was this in relation to when he got there? Was it the beginning, towards the middle, towards the end? It, he was five weeks into the deployment. Okay. Five weeks in. Okay. Yeah. Into a eight-month deployment. Right. All right. So what what do you know about the the morning of December 14th? 
Um, I know that, you know, he was, he was a forward air controller. So he was the detachment officer in charge, you know, major, he was back at the base and he was, uh, viewing the live video screen, um, of the, uh, uh, you know, what's happening outside and, and he's, you know, watching his Marines and he's calling in air support and, um, and he was watching his, you know, one of his Marines in particular, Sergeant Jason Hartzell, was coming under heavy fire for, you know, an extended period of time. You know, my brother's thinking, wow, you know, you know he must be really tired. You know, he's got to be tired. I don't want him, you know, under this heavy fire anymore. So when they came back into, when they came back into base, you know, I, my brother was like, hey, you know, you view the feed, the next shift, you view it, and I'm going to go out. And, you know, that's just, you know, that's rare for an officer to do, you know, but he, he just wanted to take care of his guys and, you know, his mission before he even, um, before he even left American soil, you know, his mission was to make sure that all of his Marines came home alive and safe. And so that's what I had it in my head. That's what I had in my head is that Sam is being deployed to make sure that his guys come home safely. So obviously he knows what he's doing. So then he steps in for Jason Harsel and he goes out and they, um, he was with Sergeant Winters and they were, you know, about 200 feet from the compound. And that's when bullets just began to rain down and they dropped down behind a mound and, you know, they were with, they were also with the, uh, the Royal Marines. They didn't have positive ID of where the enemy was coming from. And so my brother actually stood up to get positive ID. And so he was shot and he wasn't able to crouch down and before, you know, he was shot and killed, but in doing so he ended up saving, you know, his entire team. So who was out there that day? Okay. Um, now it, that's the official account that the military gave you department of defense. Yeah. Department of defense and, and his, you know, the guys who were with him. Okay. Um, so he got the uh, bronze star with Valor. He was awarded. So your mother gets this phone call or it comes to the house, I, I assume, right? Your parents get it first before you do? Actually, well, yeah, my mom found out. But actually what happened was the timing was off when they went to, you know, because they're supposed to knock on everybody's doors at the same time. And... um my mom left for work. Where um, was your mom at this point in time? She was she was at her home in Jupiter, okay. and she worked about you know an hour south in Boca Raton. And so she had gotten to work. She had, she had already been to work about thirty minutes. And um, when she was on her way to work, she got two phone calls, and she didn't recognize the number. And she was like, "Who in the heck is calling me?" You know, at at eight o'clock in the morning. So she didn't answer the phone call. She went into her office. You know, she's she's there and she's getting settled in. And then my brother's wife had called my mom and, and she was like, Mom, are you sitting down? Um, you know, and so, she, you know, and she was crying when she when she told her, obviously. And, and that's how my mom found out. So things started to happen pretty quickly after that. Um, she, my mom called me immediately. And, um, now go back. Why didn't you understand what was going on? Um, 
when she called me or yeah when your mom called you said earlier that you you just thought sam was injured yeah because i couldn't understand what my mom was saying she was just crying hysterically and and i was just like mom i can't understand what you're saying and so i'm thinking in my head it's obviously about my brother he was obviously injured is what i'm thinking in my head and but i'm thinking at least he's coming home because you know when you're injured you get to come home is you know that's the logic i'm thinking in my head and so then my mom like she slows down her words and she's like renee your brother was killed in Afghanistan. And I mean, just going back to that moment, I mean, you, your brain can't even truly comprehend what you're hearing. I mean, it's, it's just a state of shock that you instantly enter. And so, and I just remember dropping the phone and I just remember screaming, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And my 12-year-old daughter, she runs in and, and, I mean, later she told me. She heard me screaming and I hadn't told her what happened, but later she told me she knew. She knew and she heard me screaming that, you know, her Uncle Sammy had been killed. Where was your husband at this point? He was on his way to work. And um, he, we were stationed at Eglin Air Force Base. And my daughter called him up and said, you know, Daddy, Uncle Sammy was killed. And he said, okay, I'm on my way back to the house. So we turned around immediately. And, and then she just started calling people, my 12-year-old daughter. So your husband gets back home. Um, clearly, again, he understands the nature of war and Afghanistan and everything else. Yeah. Um, not that he can provide any sort of comfort per se, but do you remember what he said to you? Oh, gosh, I, I don't remember. I, I don't remember a thing except – people coming and going from my house and um, then packing up my kids' clothes, um, us trying to figure out a way to get to Dover. You know, we had, you know, the, the military will provide airfare for anyone who's listed on the, the casualty report. So, um, you know, my parents were, uh, were given airfare, you know, to, to fly to Dover and, you know, of course his wife and his sons. And so, you know, I was just in a, oh my gosh, how are we going to get from Florida to Dover, Delaware to receive his remains at that point? All right. Uh, now, I don't remember our, our Goldstone mom telling us last time because she was in California and I think she just waited for the remains to come to her. Is that an option always to go to Dover? Um, to yeah, meet the it remains? Is it is. It is an option to, to go to Dover. Did you want to do so, that or were you more comfortable staying back? No, I, I wanted to. Yeah, I. Oh man, I was. I've never been asked this question before. Um, yeah, I. Sorry, I, I'm just. No, I, no, I wanted, take your time. I, no, no, no. I, I wanted to be there when he came home. Yeah, so it was. It wasn't even a question. It was. Um, I wanted to be there when, when he touched that American soil again, and so. You know, I mean, we took it was my husband and myself and our our three kids at the time. My son was a year old and we just piled in our minivan and drove to Delaware from Eglin Air Force Base. Yep. Oh, God, that's a long ass drive. Oh, yeah. Um, I was I was awake for probably um, 
48 hours straight. We had actually stopped halfway at a hotel. And I just remember, I, I knew I was supposed to be sleeping, but I just remember sitting up in bed all night long, blank stare, uh, not even knowing what to do. I, I couldn't sleep. And so once I, once we got to, once we left the hotel that morning um, and we drove several hours, you know, my husband was like, Renee, you, you've got to like take something to, to help you sleep or something, you know, just take, you know, take a Benadryl or something just to get a few hours of sleep because, you know, I was on adrenaline overload. I couldn't even sleep. Did you end up taking anything or no? I did. Yeah. And, and then I slept for a couple hours and then I didn't know what else to do except write. And so I just started writing like all of these attributes about my brother that I loved. And I just, and then I didn't know it at the time, but it ended up being his eulogy and uh, his best friend from college uh, planned his entire funeral service. And, um, you know, I just kind of flippantly gave this to him and I was like, Hey, you know, I, I wrote this about Sam and, um, it wasn't until the morning of his funeral, actually, when I looked at the pamphlet, the, the, you know, before the service, I'm looking and I'm looking to see who, who's doing the eulogy and my name is on there. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, you know, I was so out of it, you know, he may have told me and I don't even remember, but so, and I, and I included the eulogy in the book. When you get to Dover, um, describe the scene for me. Um, when we get to Dover, we, we arrive at this uh, beautiful home. And um, it's at the Fisher House. And it's, it's a place for you know, military families to come at no cost to stay. And, and there was just people. I just remember there's just people everywhere. And you're being briefed on what's going to happen. And they're just, everybody's telling you what to do. And, and, and you're just, you're trying to. Renee, is this the first time you physically see your parents? This is the first time I saw my parents. Yes. Okay. So what was that encounter? Um, just crying, hugging, crying. I, there was one moment where I was sitting with my dad and my, my mom, and we were just sitting in a corner of the house and, one of us said something funny and there was just like this moment of, of laughter and, and we all just kind of paused like, Oh my gosh, like my brother had been dead for like two days and we're sitting here and we had a moment of laughter. And I think there was, there was a moment of like feeling ashamed that that had happened. And I remember just looking at my mom and dad and I just said, how can this be Sammy? And, you know, I, they just looked at each other, looked at me, and we all just, you know, we just cried together because, you know, you know, it was just, how could it have been him? Because to me, he was, he was everything. He was, you know, invincible. So it was, it was kind of in that moment where we were like, you know, life is never going to be the same again. As a parent, you have your kids there, um, and you're watching your parents go through the awful, most unnatural thing in the world of losing a child. Um, is that a doubly difficult moment for you as you're looking at your kids and, and 
now knowing your parents are missing one of theirs. I mean, just kind of take me through those emotions because obviously it's different when you're a parent. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was really hard because I knew the relationship my brother had with each of them. And so, you know, his relationship with my dad was totally different than his relationship with my mom. But they were just so equally just wonderful. And I mean, obviously, you know, you know, you have a different relationship with your mom and dad. Sure. You know, and so... You know, my my brother and my dad had plans for the future to open up a Mustang business, and that was kind of hitting the ground. And um, you know, my my dad had dreams of retiring and doing this business with my brother, and you know, they just spent their entire lives like under the hood of a car. And you know, there's a lot of conversations that happen under a car, and you know, and you know, so they just. They were very, very close. And, um, you know, and my mom, you know, I mean, they were divorced. So we grew up in two separate households. I mean, Sam and I grew up together in the same house, but we shared, you know, time. Um, And so, you know, my brother just adored his mom. And, you know, he told her all the secrets that he didn't want to tell my dad, you know. (laughs) And and my mom was just very... um, you know, she was, she was, she knew, you know, that's, that's my son, you know, he's going to do stupid things, but you know, I'll, I'll just kind of talk some sense into it. You know, I won't judge, <laughs> but, um, you know, they just had a really special relationship and it was very, very difficult watching them, you know, because you're thinking as a sibling, you're looking at them and you're like, I have to somehow try to process their grief and process my own at the same time. Yeah. And, and I know my parents are hurting and I have no right to be hurting as badly as they are. So I'm just going to take my grief and I'm just going to push it back there and I'll just get to it in a little while. And then a little while becomes one year and then it becomes two years, you know, and then you're just consumed with feeling guilty for grieving because you know, you shouldn't be grieving as much as your parents are, or maybe as much as the widow is or the children. Do you think if you weren't a parent and weren't married and didn't have a family, you would have reacted differently? Possibly. Um, but you know, I, I've, I think I've talked to enough siblings Mm -hmm. who feel the same way, you know, who have felt that, um, you know, they just they just had to set their grief on a shelf because um, because their parents, you know, were hurting so badly. And, um, you know, I, I can't really explain it. You know, I don't I can't understand. I can't explain the dynamics of what happens. No, I, I guess um, as an but, objective outsider, I, I sit here and I yeah. wonder, did anybody ever say to you, Renee, it's OK for you to grieve and, and be a. Did your husband say it's okay? Oh, my husband did. Oh, absolutely. Were you just not able to hear it? Didn't want to. Didn't want to listen. Uh, probably both. Um, I just, you know, I'm a doer, <laughs> so I felt like I always had to do something. So, after, you know, a month after my brother died, I started college, 
and I became a full-time college student with a 4.0. And then I started training for the Marine Corps 10K. I had never ran before, but in February of 2012, I started running um, because I was going to do the 10K. And and so I just started doing things because I was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. So I should be doing something. And you know, you pe- you just don't know what to do after when you're grieving. You don't know sure. what it looks like. So, um, so yeah, it was really my husband, honestly, because he's the closest person to me, who was like, Renee, you know, it's okay, you know, to mm-hmm. not have it all together. Let's go back to that house you were in in Dover. Um, they're t- they're briefing you on what's going to happen. What does happen? So, you know, I can't tell you the rank. Can't tell you anything about this guy i just know he was in uniform and i know he approached us um in the kitchen and we i was standing there with my dad and my mom and you know the the little kids they're you know i mean it's a sad time for them but they're like playing xbox and you know my my uh, middle daughter, she's uh, she was five at the time, and then my twelve year old, and then my son was one, and then you know Sam's kids were there, and they were six and seven, and and so they're playing with toys in the playroom, and and this guy comes in and and he's like, you know, we need we need to talk about you know Sam's remains. They're they're about they're going to be here um, pretty soon, and so I there's something I have to tell you. And he's like, I, I need you to understand this. So, you know, pay attention to me. I, I need you to understand that this is going to be the worst thing that ever happens to you in your life. Like what's about to happen in 30 minutes is going to be the worst thing that you ever experience in your life. I'm like, can you be, imagine being told that, <laughs> you know, like. I thought you were the already worst? there is what really kind right, of was exactly. my first thought. How could it get worse after this? Correct. And, and he was right. Um, you know, when you see when you see that flag draped coffin come out the back of that C seventeen, that's that's a moment that you know you just never forget. And I can say that was certainly the hardest hardest moment out of all the moments. Is it because the finality becomes final? Yeah, you know, people see, say that, you know, what happens when you actually see them. Um, we didn't get a chance to see him. So, you know, there was that, you know, you're, you're looking at this flag drape coffin and you're trying to picture him inside it. But your mind is also trying to picture it empty. You know, you're, you're, you're hoping he's not inside it. You're hoping they made a mistake and, you know, your mind is just going a hundred different places, but, you know, that's the moment where, you know, you're thinking, oh my God, you know, my brother's dead and this is the last time he's ever going to be in our presence. Wow. Um, did you request to actually open the coffin and see it? Were you, or they told you you couldn't? Um, it was highly recommended that we not view him uh, because of where he was shot. And uh, he was shot right through his face. 
And, um, and so, uh, it was the only place that he didn't have any, any cover. Um, and, and so, you know, his wife made the decision to have him cremated. And, uh, so yeah, we never, we never saw him. Um, that moment when you see the, the, the casket come out, the, the flag draped coffin, um, and they're, where are they moving it to? Where are they taking it to? Do you know, or they, I, I just know that they put it on the back of an ambulance and it drove away and they were going to do an autopsy and, um, you know, and then they were, they would cremate him. And, um, and I was actually, we ended up because of the, the, the length of time that it took, um, we actually had his memorial service, uh, you know, with just a picture. And then my husband and I and our kids stayed with his widow for about three weeks because we still had to get through Christmas. And Jesus. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like Christmas Eve and we're like, Oh my gosh, we don't have any presents for our kids. (laughs) And that a kick in uh, the pants. Yeah. So, Toys for Tots shows up at our doorstep with toys for, I mean, there was probably over a hundred toys that they brought in the house for, for the kids for Christmas. And, uh, we, you know, were you back in Florida for that or no? No, we were in Virginia beach. So, um, that's where, you know, his, his, that's where him and his wife, uh, lived lived. was Virginia beach. So he, he was a reservist. So he would go down to his unit on the, you know, his drill weekends. But, um, so we stayed in Virginia beach for, for about three weeks. And so we, we were there when, um, actually his best, two best friends, uh, brought him home in his, uh, his urn and, um, you know, just dressed in their dress blues. They were both Marines and showed up in a Mustang and, um, and brought him home to, to his wife. And then, um, a year later, December 14, 2012, um, he was buried in Arlington. Renee, there's, there's so many um, tangential things going on here, you know, from your story. Um, you know, his spouse, his wife, um, your parents, the kids, all the kids, not your kids, his nieces and nephews, but, you know, his kids as well. Um, are you able to start having conversations or any questions being asked. Are you talking to each other about this? How are you in the early stages of this? How are you all getting by? How are you grieving together? If at all? Um, you know, we, you know, I told you earlier about, you know, I, I felt like we had to do, do something. And then, you know, about four months after, um, my brother was killed. I just kind of crashed and burned. I was, um, you know, I was very, very depressed and having suicidal thoughts and, um, just not really knowing what to do with the pain and had contemplated suicide. Um, let me pause right there. I'm just, when you, when you get to that point, you're not talking to your parents, you're not talking to his wife. And this is all total shutdown mode. Uh, it's shut down and there's a lot of arguing going on with whom, how, so, uh, parents, um, everybody around me, I, I, I was just, um, you know, everybody's angry sure. and, 
and not really, you know, it's, it's hard to explain depression to people who, who haven't experienced it. Right. Um, you know, but you know, one of the, the biggest signs of PTSD is anger. And my daughter is a uh, type one diabetic and she, um, she went into the hospital at one point and, and I remember just screaming at the doctor because he wasn't helping her um, the way I felt that he should. She was very, very sick. And so, and I just stood there and I was just like screaming at this doctor, like, why aren't you helping my daughter? You know, and you're, you're wrong. Your tests are wrong. And she ended up being, um, she was very, very sick and, and she did eventually get the help that she needed. But, um, I was really just lashing out at everybody. Um, I just didn't know how to process the grief and, and my husband, uh, it was really him who consulted with, uh, some of the people in his unit and they kind of did, came to the house and did an intervention with me. And I was just kind of like, you know, I, I was just like, what are you talking about? I thought, I thought I was just grieving. I thought everybody feels this way. And, and, um, I didn't realize I, I just, I, I wasn't handling things at all. How is your husband watching all this unfold? What is he saying? What is he doing? Um, well, you know, in the midst of it, we're fighting too. Sure. And, and, um, You know, you know we haven't we haven't talked about that time a whole lot. Um, Do you need to? I don't think so. Uh, honestly, I think we've moved beyond it just because of the steps we took to get better. Um, so we did a lot of. Um, you know, interactive therapy. Actually, I have, I, I talk about this in the book. The best thing that we ever did was equine therapy where we worked with horses. And, um, that was the, the organization who helped us deals a lot with combat veterans and PTSD. And, um, they have a very high success rate. And so, um, my husband and myself and my oldest daughter, who's 12, who, you know, also suffers from PTSD. She, um, we, we just all, you know, benefited tremendously from that. So I don't really feel like I need to go back and, and discuss that time frame. Sure. every once in a while. I will, um, you know, we will have maybe a brief conversation about something. Dip or, a toe in the water, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Without, without going all the way in. <laughs> right. What is your relationship like with your parents through these first six months to a year? Um, there was a lot of turmoil, uh, with my dad. Um, but I don't really want to get into that. Um, my, my mom, we went through a period of about four months of not talking, uh, because her and I got into, you know, a huge argument. Um, and so you're trying to deal with all of these external relationships and and also deal with the grief or not deal with the grief um, and also be a wife and be a mom and, you know, pay the bills. <laughs> so, you know, there's just there's there's all of these things happening at the same time. And, you know, it's kind of like you don't really know 
which one do you need to, to, to process first? Which one do I need to work on first? And um, it was really hard going four months without talking to my mom. But um, when I my when I went through that with her, um, it was more of a they must wish it had been me instead of my brother. Whoa, say that again. Your par- I, you you felt like your parents thought that? Oh yeah. Yeah. I because he was like the superstar of the family. I mean, and I don't oh, mean Renee. that. Oh I mean that that's real. I mean that's there's a lot of siblings who feel that way. You know, do do my parent my brother is a war hero. You know, he he did all these amazing things in his life and you know, he was just um so highly thought of and 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 i and i felt the same way about him um you know and so but your mind goes there your mind wonders if somehow life would have been better if it had been me and not him i don't feel that way now well thank god Uh, (laughs) yeah but when you're when you're in that first year you know um and you're watching your parents grieve you know you wonder you know, would they be grieving the same way if it had been me? Wow. So, yeah. No, listen, I, again, I, I, my exclamation was more of not that you were, you were, you know, wrong for feeling that way or anything, yeah. just, you know, exasperation at the depths of, of how much hurt was you guys were going through. Um, oh, yeah. And, and in it's fairness, it's not talked about. Honestly, it's not talked about. What is the, the the depth of the whole thing, or oh yeah, like still to this day? Yeah, it's it's, um, you know, unless you're unless you're a part of a a really great support group, you know, with with other grieving siblings, um, if you're not if if siblings aren't in with other siblings, this subject is not being talked about, and. You're not talking about these issues with your parents or your friends, you know. I mean, it's first of all, you feel like you're. Free. I mean, there's some friends who who just who can't deal with the grief and they back off. But you know, and then there's there's friends who, you know, were with you from the beginning. And um, but yeah, it's just it's not something that you want to talk about. It's not a feeling that you really want to express. Um, and so, you know, there are some really great support groups out there. The Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors, uh, you know, is a, is a great program who helps the, um, you know, military families of fallen soldiers. So, you know, unless you're plugged in with something like that, um, it, it's just it's not talked about. You know, the natural inclination, let me rephrase that because I don't know if it's natural, but an inclination would be that there's a certain amount of the, this grief that would hopefully bring everybody together and make them tighter, not separate them apart. Or is any of your family at a point where you guys are drawing back closer to one another, realizing the depravity of life and what has happened that you may need each other now more than ever? Oh, well, I mean, my mom and I are closer than ever. Um, okay, so you have you know, rebounded. 
Oh, absolutely. Okay. Um, we, we do a lot of things. We, we try to go to as many events as we can. She's my biggest cheerleader. She's probably read my book five times. <laughs> um, you know, she keeps it on the, on the coffee table and she's always thumbing through it and reading old stories. And, um, you know, she's just always telling me how proud, you know, she is of me. And, um, you know, so, and I don't think she's doing that to make me feel better. I think, you know, it's just, um, we've, I feel like we've really risen from the ashes and, you know, she, her and her husband do a uh, memorial golf tournament every single year in memory of my brother down in Jupiter, Florida. Um, and 100% of the proceeds go back to combat veterans. And, and I mean, we've, they've risen over six figures for combat vets. And I think this June will be the sixth year. So, um, you know, you, you, you find things that you can either come together on, um, you know, or, or somehow, um, you know, there's, unfortunately there's, there's just relationships that, that never heal. Um, but, you know, my, my husband and I are very close. I have a great relationship with my kids and, um, you know, I feel like I've gotten to a place in my life where, you know, I'm proud of myself and where I am now and, you know, just how I can, um, just be raw and honest enough in my feelings that even if it's one person can say, oh my gosh, I felt the same way. I'm not alone you know, that makes it worth it. When Uncle Sammy comes up uh, from your kids, what's the topic? What do they say? What do you say? Uh, my oldest daughter doesn't really like to talk about him very much. Why? Um, she she still struggles. That day was was just very traumatic for her. Sure. Um, yeah. she, she loved him so much. I mean, you know, she just thought of him as a second dad and, um, you know, she really kind of just stepped into a parent role that day and, and then she had an emotionally absent mother for the next two years of her life. Wow. Were your other kids too young? I know, I think you said your youngest was one at the time, so he probably has no recollection. He uh, doesn't, he talks about him like he knows him though. Oh, really? We talk, oh, we talk about uncle Sammy so much. Um, even I have a three-year-old daughter now and even she talks about uncle Sammy and she knows his picture and you know, it's just, it's just so sweet to me that they talk about him as if they knew him and because they do, they know him from, from us. And you know, my five-year-old, um, she remembers quite a bit and she loved him too. You know, she, she struggled for many, many years. Um, you know, there would just be moments where she would just break down and start crying. And we wouldn't know why she's crying. You know, we would just try talking to her and ask her why she's crying. And then she would mention, you know, I miss Uncle Sammy. So, uh, you know, we've, we've gone through a lot of growth together as a family. Um, it's, it's not pretty you know, what gold star families go through mm. afterwards. Um, but I'm, I'm so thankful that I have the support system that I have. Is there anything that makes you angry still? 
Um, Betty's not here. Um, that you know. Let me rephrase. Are there any triggers for you that oh, get you yeah. angry? Like, oh my what gosh. are they? Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about this. Memorial Day. Yeah. Okay. That's what I was kind of, I was, I didn't want to go directly there because I didn't know if it did or I, I guess, cause I mean, look, uh, I, I feel sort of the same. Sometimes the, the over the civilian society overdoes it uh, to a point where yeah. it's almost disingenuous. Yeah. And so to that end, that's why I was asking if there was any triggers that kind of make you realize and go, yeah, you guys are doing this, but you don't really know what you think, yeah. you know. Yeah. There's all kinds of triggers that I don't even realize that I'm being triggered until I really think about the time of year. So, um, you know, I'll actually start getting subconsciously triggered um, in, in late August, the time that, you know, I spent my last week with him. Um, I get triggered in um, Thanksgiving. You know, that's the day he called us last. And then, of course, you know, the week's up until Christmas. Um, and then the the weeks before Memorial Day and then his birthday is June 14th, which is also Flag Day. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I just start becoming a little more on edge. And and then I, I it'll actually I actually will talk to my mom about it and she'll, she'll be having the same exact triggers. And then we'll, we'll just be kind of like, oh, yeah, this is why you know, we're, we're having a difficult time right now, but yeah, the Memorial day thing, I I could just, I could go off on that subject, (laughs) but it's just, and I don't mean to, you know, and I, I mean like last year, it it was last year or the year before, you know, my mom was with a group of friends and one of them wished her happy Memorial day. And, and she was just like, are you serious? What? what is happy about Memorial day? I just had this conversation with a friend, you know? Um, and he was like, what, you know? And I mean, there's, there's some insensitivity that happens. Um, so, you know, you, you just got to have grace for people, honestly. And you just have to thank God that they don't know what you've been through. Yeah. And, and hope that they never experience the same thing. I mean, exactly. Yeah, well, again, commercialism and, uh, you know, has kind of hijacked Memorial Day and Veterans Day and everything else. And to that end, it's a little frustrating, to say the least, because uh, somebody who's worn a uniform for nearly 20 years and knows people like you uh, and your families and what the the entire uh, depth of what combat is and what it entails and the, the post, you know, the aftermath and all that, uh, uh, I get upset at it. So I, I could yeah. clearly understand why, you know, people in your position would as well. Um, with that, tell me about the book, Always My Hero. Uh, what was the impetus for writing it? When did you get to a point where you knew you wanted to tackle this project? Uh, well, you know, I knew probably since my late 20s, I wanted to write a book. Uh, I always I always had that in the back of my head. And, and I would say it to my husband, I'd be like, one day I'm going to write a book. Um, I didn't know what I was going to write it about until my brother died. And then I started, you know, thinking I'm going to write a book, but I don't know. I didn't really know how I was going to organize the book. I didn't know, you know, the, how I wanted 
the book to be. And so about in 2003, I started writing, um, I started writing the book and, um, I wrote several thousand, I think between like 10 and 30,000 words that I eventually just completely deleted. I don't even have them anywhere on my hard drive. Um, I just realized that I was still in a very, very angry place and um, just didn't want to publish a disaster. So I put it on the shelf for about another four years and it was the prompting of a good friend of mine, Amanda, her, um, her husband, she's a military wife as well. Her husband's an army ranger. And, um, you know, she, we were driving in the car and, and she, she was like, you know, Renee, when are you going to write that book that you've talked about? And, and that was in 2017. Uh, and I was just like, you know, I think I'm ready to do this. And so I didn't know the first thing about really writing a book that would be published. Um, but when, once I started, once the, you know, that creativity started to flow, um, it just really fell together beautifully. I knew I wanted to write a book um, that people could envision in their head as a movie. So I wanted them, as they read through the book, I wanted them to be able to visualize this. Uh, you know, as a movie, you know, so they could really um, feel who my brother was. And, and I was successful at doing that. Um, you know, people have just written me and they've told me that they just feel like they know Sam after, after, you know, reading the book. And that's, that was the goal. I wanted people to really, really um, know and love Sam the way we did. So I had it written in about three months and I got a publisher and um, we published it. It was released July 4th of 2018 and I went on Fox and Friends and then um, sales kind of slowed down. And then, we, you know, we wanted in, um, in January of this year, I actually was offered a, a contract with a great um, PR firm. They loved the book and they were like, Hey, let's, let's relaunch this book. And I was like, how do you, how do you do that? And they were like, well, we'll re let's get it republished and we'll add a forward. And so I contacted Lieutenant Colonel Alan West and he, within 24 hours, he had emailed me a forward. He was like, I would love this opportunity. So he was actually the congressman of the district in which my brother served and he knew my brother. And, um, and so he was sworn in the year that my brother was killed. And so, you know, it was just, it was really special that he wrote the forward. And so here we are, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got a second edition now that's going to be released on his birthday, June 14th. And, um, with a forward by Alan West. And now I've got some, some great endorsements and, I'm just, I'm so excited. How much uh, relief from grief does the book give you? Um, it comes in waves, but there's so much victory in this. And I, I mean, I have to tell you, it's, it's a lot of hard work. And there's a lot of days that my husband gets texts from me that I say, I want to quit. And, um, you know, it just, it becomes overwhelming. Um, and, you know, but you push through it. You know, I just, 
You know, I think about that Marine who, um, I don't know recently if you saw him in the news, but his legs gave out at the Boston Marathon. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, and he just crawled across the finish line because he thought about, you know, his three buddies who were killed. and, And that's what it's like. You know, it's just, it's knowing you're doing something for a purpose bigger and beyond yourself. And it just, it helps. You know, I know Sam is with me. Um, You know, I know there's moments of just utter and complete joy and, and he's there with me in those moments. And then, you know, in the times where it's really, really hard to do, you know, another interview and talk about it again, um, you know, he's there too. And he's, you know, just pushes me. So it, it does help. And it helps, you know, all the feedback I get from other people who have said, you know, your book has helped me. Um, So. So as you go through, um, you know, these tours and and the book keeps getting promoted, um, I know you say sometimes it gets tougher, but does it ever get easier? Um, I don't know if it ever gets easier. Um, Every day is different. Um, you know, it, it just, I don't know if I'd, I don't know if I'd want it to be easy. You know, I, and I don't, I I know that may sound crazy, but. No, I think it makes sense because if it gets easier, then it's almost like Sam is slipping from you. Yeah. You know, and I don't know, there's just, um a deep satisfaction that comes with, you know, overcoming, you know, the hard times. And, um, you know, it's, it's, I don't know. I, it's just, it's good. You know, I, Renee, what would you say to any gold star family member listening right now? Oh boy. Um, I would say, you know, depending on where they are on their journey, um, new gold star families, I would say, take any expectations off yourself and, um, and other family members, you know, it's, it's, it takes all of your energy just to survive that loss. And, and, um, and so you can't really look for any answers during that, during that new phase, during that, you know, for the first year, the first year of shock and the second year when it becomes reality and you're coming out of the fog and, you know, you're just really having to face the hard stuff. Um, But, you know, I'm a strong believer in in God, and I have a a very strong Christian faith, and that has come through, you know, my my walk, um, my healing process. And I would just say that there is always hope. Um, You can feel happiness and joy again. Um, You can enjoy your life. 
and you can be sad and you can grieve at the same time that, you know, you're, you're living, you know, it's, they just, the joy and the, the grief coexist and they always will forever. And so, um, what I wish somebody had told me after, after Sam died is, is, um, how different the second year is from the first. And, um, I wasn't really prepared, but hold on to your, your friendships, you know, the ones who are real, you know, keep them close and, um, you know, be willing to let go of, of, of changing relationships, I would say, because everything changes. Well, I think they're incredibly sound words. Um, I would add from an outsider's perspective, um, courage and grace are two attributes that you have exhibited throughout this whole thing. Not only courage to tell your story, but uh, the grace to be able to do it, um, not only with dignity, but also just um, to understand that people don't understand what you're going through and allow for questions and, and um, you know, meet a probe uh, and just try to understand the human condition of this whole thing and you being able to yeah. do it with a certain amount of uh, strength and, and not be, you know, um, upset for <laughs> questions that, that may, you know, w- unknowingly upset you because it just, you know, as we talked about, is, is a trigger or it strikes a nerve yeah. um, about something you're feeling about your brother. So I thank you for that. And I certainly thank you for sharing your story um, and, and being courageous enough to do so. And I, I thank you mostly for, for keeping Sam's memory alive because that is probably most paramount in all this uh, whenever we talk to Gold Star families is that uh, for me, you know, Sam is part of my life now. You know, I didn't know him before this story and now I do. Oh, and, thank you. And to that end, I think that's maybe uh, one of the most important things that we can leave the listeners with is that they'll know the name Sam Griffith and, and that there, there's value in that. Thank you so much. And, and I just got to say, thank you for, for asking the hard questions. Um, you know, I know, you know, I, as an interviewer, it's got to be hard to, to ask those questions. And, um, and I truly appreciate that because it's really the hard questions that, you know, that help other people. You know, it's great to hear Sam's story and it's it's great to hear his life as a Marine and and, um, you know, just kind of getting through the surface questions, you know, are always good. But, you know, it's it's really the hard questions that, you know, the listeners who are going through difficult times can hold on to. Well, I thank you for that. And I think the point more than anything, and, and part of the reason you wrote the book is to get to those raw emotions, you know, is to is to get through the surface stuff. Sure, we can ask you how you're doing and you can tell us you're fine and put a smile on your face and go about your business. But I, I think in the grand scheme of things, if we want to make an impact on lives and make an impact on people who are listening, um, it is those questions that allow them to really understand what you're going through. Um, and that's why I use the word grace, uh, because those questions are difficult for you. And I know that. Um, and you could easily just said, look, I don't want to go there and I'm not going to talk about that because it's too personal and that's fine. I would respect that. But I think in the same respect, our audience is grateful that you're willing to be so, uh, so honest and, and, and share with us, uh, all of your deepest feelings about everything that's gone on in your life. And again, I think it's a tribute to Sam. Yeah. 
I, I think that Sam would want you to be the same way and, and help his story live on through those eyes. Thank you. Renee Nickel, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thanks so much. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Cox can help make your home smarter and your life easier. Now you can use your Contour voice remote to connect to your home life cameras so you can view them right on your TV screen using simple voice commands. That makes it easy to keep tabs on what's happening around your home right from your couch. Need to keep an eye on the kids when they're playing outside? Just say, show me my backyard camera into your Cox voice remote and watch them while you're in the house. And if you're waiting for a delivery and want to make sure it's there on time, no problem. Just say, show me driveway camera to check on it with your Home Life HD cameras on the TV screen while you go about your day. When you live in a home powered by Cox Internet, you can stay connected to what matters and let Cox take care of the rest. To learn more about all the benefits of your connected home, visit cox.com slash thisishome today.